Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and 8. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word of the Lord. There's a hiring maxim that many of you know or have used if you've been in the process of searching for an employee. The maxim goes like this. Past history is the best indicator of future performance. Past history is the best indicator of future performance. And behind that is the idea that history builds trust. Now, Jumping from the realm of business and employment, let's go to something very different, but where the same thing sort of holds true, romantic comedies. Now, in the average romantic comedy that's well done, there is enough history present between the two characters to make the romance believable. Even if the whole thing is supposed to take place in one day or over the course of a few weeks, a well-done romantic comedy actually causes you to buy into these characters' history working together. So... In You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are the two characters who start dating online, thus You've Got Mail. And in their online correspondence, they're very nice and sweet to each other. But they meet each other unknowingly in present-day life, and they're very antagonistic towards each other. But as the viewer, we're watching them unfold, and their characters are coming out, and, and the tension builds because we see both of them angling towards each other, and we want it to work out. And we want it to work out because the history is there, even if the history only takes place over the course of a few hours, or in the case of this movie, a few months. Similarly, the best of the three Star Wars movies, and yes, there are only three Star Wars movies, (laughs) the best of the three Empire Strikes Back builds to a crescendo around, actually, Han Solo and Princess Leia and their romance together. Throughout all of the Star Wars series, they are antagonistic towards each other. But that antagonism is actually building their character's connection to one another. And so Han Solo, the the bravado of Han Solo, tells Princess Leia, you like me because I'm a scoundrel and there aren't enough scoundrels in your life. And Princess Leia retorts back, I happen to like nice men. And Han, hurt a little bit, says, I am a nice man. And back and forth they go, taunting each other and you know it's going to build towards something. That history, even if it's in a short film, 
gives us the believability. History builds trust, which is very different, of course, than today's college and post-college hookup culture. That's a common phrase that's used now by those who are studying the sociology of young adults. And in the hookup culture, you really just get physically intimate even if you don't really know the person. In fact, it's better to not really know the person. You don't need to date. You just need to hook up. And of course, that's physical intimacy without any history. I would suggest, and most of you may or may not buy into this based on discussions on the hookup culture, that there's a love and a joy that's deeper than physical intimacy, that's better than a biochemical pleasure reaction. And it might look like the difference between the hookup culture in a 50-year marriage. In a 50-year marriage, you see and you watch people who have that 50- or 60-year marriage, and you think, that's a shared life together. But I'm going to tell you, when they're 50 or 60 years married, they don't look very sexy anymore. But they've developed trust and intimacy and understanding, a love and a joy that's deeper than physical pleasure alone because they have history. Friendships and the best of friendships also build on history. Trust and enjoyment can be there when you first meet somebody that becomes a friend, but that trust and enjoyment is deepened because of shared history. Often your best friends are ones that you've experienced a lot of life together with or you've known for the longest amount of time. The Bible makes it clear we are made to be known and to be loved, to know and to love. And history builds the sort of intimacy that's emotional and spiritual, emotional and spiritual intimacy that allows for deeper trust. Faith follows much the same course. See, faith looks back over God's history and says, I can trust this God. Now, people here in this room might be on a range from complete unbelief in this God thing to firm faith in this God. But all of us deal with doubts and struggles. Could be doubts about whether God actually exists or doubts about whether God really loves you. How could he? And especially for some of us who have dealt with struggles and challenges in life or prayed prayers and felt like they were not being answered. And so we ask, can I believe in this God? What is this God actually like? Can I trust this God? To answer those questions, you need to get to know God. And that's why we go back again and again to God's story. You see, if you were an Israelite, an ancient Israelite, the Israelites valued Scripture and they valued their festivals and traditions because in them, they were reenacting and retelling the history of redemption, God's history of redemption. And it's why we gather each week to sing, to tell, to retell, to reenact the history of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ so that we can understand the history of this God, this friend, this person who loves us and say, can I buy into this? Can I trust this? So this morning, we're looking at two bold claims of Jesus 
These claims were made in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. But in order to understand what Jesus was actually claiming, we need to understand the Feast of Tabernacles. In order to understand that, we actually have to go through history. So this morning, we're going to actually look at history. And the hope is this, that we might see in Jesus, the God of history, acting to love and provide for and forgive and save his people, even us. So the background behind all of this, as the background is really the case with most of the things that happen in Israel, is the story of the Exodus. Most of us have some idea of the Exodus story, even if it's just a Yul Brenner version of it. But the Exodus went like this. The Exodus went like this, is that God said, I am going to save this people. So he sends Moses, and, and he brings plagues on the Egyptians. And on the Passover night, he delivers his people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea miraculously and are delivered from slavery in Egypt. That was the climactic and triumphant event in Israel's history. They always went back to the Exodus and what God did to save them. The festival that marked that was the festival, the Feast of the Passover, which is about the same time as we celebrate Easter. But then God continued to work his salvation in their history. It wasn't just getting them out of Egypt. For 40 years, the Lord led them and provided for them in the wilderness. And so you have the story of the Israelites not having food and God providing manna. There's an, a story in Exodus 17 as they're out wandering in the wilderness where they don't have any water. Thousands and thousands of people with no source of water in the middle of the desert. And the Lord provides water out of a rock. It's one of the miracles they looked back on again and again. For 40 years, the Lord was with them and led them. And they knew he was with them because he made himself visibly present with them as either a pillar of cloud or of fire. Cloud during the day, fire at night. And they knew when to set up tent and stay put because the cloud or the fire stayed put. And they knew when to go and to march out because the fire led them at night or the cloud during the day, telling them which way to go, where to go to follow the Lord. The Lord provided for them for 40 years until they entered the promised land. That wilderness wandering was memorialized in the Feast of Tabernacles. That time when they would celebrate their, the reminder that God provided for them and met all of their needs. And so the whole thing built up this idea, this history in their past, thousands of years in their past, to think that the God who saved them was their redeemer and their provider. And every year through these festivals, they would recall what God had done, reminding them of his love for them, his covenant love for them. But as history happened, the Israelites turned away from God. So again, I told you this is a history lesson, right? So that's the Exodus. The next move is the Israelites for about 100 years, maybe 10 years, maybe 200 years, they followed the Lord, but then they slowly turned their back on God. They rejected God. And over the course of a couple hundred years, it says that they were putting their trust in religion and failing to, to, to give mercy and justice to those in need, the weak and the defenseless. They were failing to be a light to the Gentiles, to the worlds around them, to display the love and mercy and greatness of God. 
And in their rejection of God, God gave them over to exile. For hundreds of years, the Israelites no longer had their land. They were either taken away or were occupied, first by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then by Jesus' day, the Romans. This period of exile was a period where the Israelites felt like God was not with them anymore. And it was symbolized by two things that Jesus claims in our passage. It was symbolized often by darkness and by drought. When God is not with us, we're in darkness. When God is not providing for us, we're in drought without water. And it's worth thinking about those two images for a moment. Darkness and lacking water. So, the fear of darkness begins at an early age, and it's the kid who doesn't want to go into the basement. Even though light switches exist, there's just the, the recognition that that's a dark place, and you don't want to go down there alone. Come on, come with me, one brother will say to another. And if you've ever been in a very dark place, it's very disconcerting. I don't know if any of you have been caving before, but one of the tricks of going caving is that the, the caving guide will always say to everyone in the, in the group, okay, now everyone turn off your lights. And if you're deep into a cave, you find it is the darkest dark you've ever been in. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And it's fun for a few seconds. But then pretty soon, somebody begins to panic because it's just dark. And you can't imagine existing in that sort of darkness. But of course, literal darkness is symbolic of the sort of darkness and evil that we see in and around our world. People who work in fighting things like human trafficking say these are very dark places they have to go into. People who have dealt with depression understand the darkness that can overcome a person. Darkness is even a metaphor that's used for hell itself. When Jesus says they will be cast out into outer darkness. Darkness as a symbol of evil and sin and death is very present. We kind of get it, and it's there throughout the scriptures. It was there in the prophets in their longing that God would one day bring his light again. And it was there in the idea as well, similarly, of water and the lack of water. Now, I've not had to deal with actual dehydration and not having water, and I don't know if any of you have ever lived in places where you had no access to water. The closest I've been is in camping trips, seven to ten day backpacking trips in the Adirondacks, where in order to drink the water, you had to pump the water or boil it. So you would spend about an hour to two hours a day just providing water to drink. And I remember just going on those backpacking trips, and when I got back to base camp or to a store or any place, being so thankful for running water. Desperation for water is second only to desperation for air. And in much of the world today, they still live needing to walk two, three, five miles just to fill up jugs for water for the day. The ancient Israelites understood in that dry and arid land just how desperate a need water was. They understood how de dehydration makes your brain go crazy, the headaches, the swollen tongue, and the suffering that can lead to death. It's a desperate place to be to not have access to water. And it also is used as a description of hell itself. In that one story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is up in heaven, 
and the rich man is down in hell. And the rich man is said metaphorically to be burning and thirsting. And he calls out, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. But it can't happen. His tongue can't be cooled. To not have water, to be in outer darkness, is to be in a place apart from God, to not have God anywhere near us. And so Israel's story went like this. In the Exodus, they saw God acting to save them. He brought water out of a rock and led them with a pillar of fire by night. But in their sin, they got turned over to exile, and darkness and drought was what metaphorically described them. But the prophets also looked for the day when God would come to right all wrongs. And this is what sets up some of what was anticipated in Jesus' day when he makes his claims. So in the book of Isaiah, one of the prophets, Isaiah is pointing to the day of the Lord's return. And he uses the symbolism of water and of light time and again. In Isaiah 9, which we use often at uh, Christmas, Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. In Isaiah 42, he says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. So think about these light and water imagery. It's a part of what was anticipated. When the Lord came, when the Lord returned and did something like he did in the Exodus again, it would involve water overflowing, light being brought into their darkness. He says, I will pour out, in Isaiah 44, I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, pour water out. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then in Isaiah 49, he says, To the prisoners, the Lord says, come out. To those in darkness, appear. They shall not hunger or thirst. The Lord will have pity on them and guide them by springs of water. In Isaiah 55, it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This was the hope of Israel, even in Jesus' day, that one day the Lord would come. And when he came, he would bring light to their darkness and sin and despair. He would bring water to their desperation, overflowing. Because when God is present, when God is present, streams start flooding deserts. When God is present, his light drives out all of our darkness. And so in Jesus' day, every year they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was called the Feast. It was the big feast in Jesus' day. And if, just to kind of give some context to the feasts in Jesus' day, they were national celebrations, and they were like holidays with the entire family and entire village. And so I, I was talking with some friends recently about Christmas memories, and one of them talked about even getting in the car to drive the New Jersey Turnpike every Christmas. And even getting in the car and that drive up the New Jersey Turnpike was enjoyable. Why? Because when they got there on Christmas afternoon, they were meeting up with their cousins. And having all the family together celebrating Christmas was a memory of great and deep joy. Some of you have experienced something similar in vacations with friends where you and numerous friends gather, and sometimes you do it year in and year out, gather together in big houses or all together celebrating and enjoying life together in those vacations. 
When the festivals of Israel happened, the people would come from villages all over the place, and they would travel with their family and friends in big caravans, walking usually for days to get to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. If you were a kid in that day and age, it would have been the high point of the entire year. You're walking, you're hanging out with your friends, your extended family, all your cousins. The village is there as you're traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. Your dad and mom are working so hard during the year but this is the one time they're cutting loose. The best description that I could come up with for what Jerusalem must have been like during these festivals is like the big cities in America and in Europe on VE and VJ Day. When Europe was was finally freed of Nazi terrorism, essentially, on those days there were these massive celebrations. On, On VE Day, there was a million people piled into Chicago, just going crazy. Two million people in Times Square. And you've seen those pictures. There's confetti everywhere. People are grabbing and hugging and kissing one another. There's dancing in the streets and corks being popped. It's a massive celebration of joy for the entire nation. Israel did that every year. They gathered in these massive celebrations. And they built these booths They would come at the Feast of Tabernacles and build these booths. Because when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they didn't live in brick houses. They built tents that they could pack up and take with them. And so when they would come for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build these tents, temporary shelters, you and your whole family, your cousins and friends, all with these tents. All of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas would have been filled with tents everywhere you could possibly imagine. It was an incredibly exciting time in that city. And it was filled with all sorts of historical longing. They looked back to what God had done, and they looked forward to the day when God would come again to rescue them. And as they celebrated, they did a couple of things that Jesus takes advantage of. One was every morning in the Feast of Tabernacles that lasted for seven or eight days, every morning there was a great water pouring ceremony. The priests would go down to the stream and fill up these golden pitchers of water. And then they would march in procession with the entire city just going crazy as they marched step by step with horns and songs. And when they would get to the altar of the temple, they would pour the water out, and the water would flow out over the sides. And it was symbolic that one day when God comes, he will flood us and meet all of our needs, like water pouring out over the temple. And then every night they did something else that was very unique in that day and age. Every night they would light giant candelabra on the Temple Mount. You see, Jerusalem was the tallest mountain in the region, and the temple in Jerusalem was the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. And on that Temple Mount during the Feast of Tabernacles, they built these 70-foot-tall candelabra. On the top of these 70-foot-tall pillars were these bowls filled with oil, and all four of them were lit at night. Now, none of us have lived, unless you've been through like a hurricane or something or a power outage where it's just really dark because nobody has lights on for a couple of days. That's the way life was in the ancient world prior to electricity. It was generally pretty dark. But during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, these giant candelabra were said to, according to one oral tradition of the rabbis, to light all of Jerusalem. There was not a court in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the lights of the water drawing. 
So for seven days, they celebrated like mad, like VE Day, like Christmas and New Year's and the 4th of July all piled into one. It was the big vacation celebration of the year. Water and light celebrating and representing all that God had done for them and hopefully would do again. They repeated the Psalms and Isaiah 12, which says, you will with joy draw water from the wells of salvation. The festival looked forward to that day when God would come and they would find salvation overflowing and God would be with them. And it was all symbolized in this water and in this fire light. So, on the last and great day of the feast, they did the water pouring ceremony for the last time. The candelabra had been lit the night before for the last time. Jesus stands up in the very place where the water pouring was taking place, in the very place where the lighting of the whole city was taking place, and it had just been snuffed out, the water poured out for the last time. And Jesus gets up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The water has just been poured out for the last time, and Jesus says, I'm the source of water you're actually looking for. And a few verses later, he says, as the candelabra had been put out for the last time, representing all that God had done leading them, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This great festival that they celebrated every year, that looked back over the history of God's salvation and longed for God to come again, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all that this feast points to and all that you long for. Israel was looking for God to come, to flood them with his presence. And Jesus says, I'm here. You're looking for God, I'm here. You want God to come and rescue you, I've come. Jesus is saying, I was the fire and cloud that led you through the wilderness. I was the one who provided the water out of the rock. And Jesus is saying to the Israelites, as he says to us, what you need more than water in a desert, what you need more than a new house or a better job or a date on Valentine's Day or to lose 10 pounds, what you need is me. What you need more than water is me. I'm the only light that can drive away the darkness of your sin and guilt and despair in life. I've come to rescue and provide for and be with you. So follow me. Believe in me. See, this is the gospel that Jesus is pointing to. He's taking all of this imagery and saying, everything that history has been pointing to is fulfilled in me. And we see it on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took on the forces of darkness by bearing God's right judgment on our sin and evil. And in his resurrection, Jesus not only bears our judgment, but defeats darkness, rises victorious over sin and death and evil. Jesus says, I am the source of water you need. I am the light you've been looking for that all of history has been longing for. You know, our history 
according to the Bible, is that we've been unfaithful. We live apart from God. We, by nature, turn from walking in the light to choose to walk in darkness. We've chosen barren deserts. To live our life on our own is to say, I want to walk in my own desert rather than dwell in your garden. Our history says God shouldn't trust us. We should be rejected by God like an unfaithful spouse or a distrustful friend. And maybe some of you have experienced the rejection of people. That's what our history says, that we should be cast out and not trusted. But God doesn't deal with us the way people do. You see, Jesus on the cross takes our unfaithfulness, our sin upon himself. He's forsaken, driven into darkness, thirsting, cast out from the Father so that we might be brought near, so that God might even take up residence in us as his spirit dwells in us. Our history says this, we deserve darkness and deserts. But God's story in Jesus says we are offered true and lasting satisfaction, eternal hope instead of what we deserve. So the question is, can you trust this God? Is he somebody you can believe in? Is he somebody whose history and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ is worth putting our trust in? It's a question we all need to ask and all need to answer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this room, there are many of us who are thirsty, wanting more out of life than we're getting. And many of us who feel burdened by darkness. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and mouths to taste the goodness of God for us in Jesus Christ. The God of the Exodus, the God of the prophets, the God of the feasts is in Jesus Christ. God for us, giving us light and water and hope and life. In his name we pray, amen.
I come to thee. 